listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast has been leading podcast publications as the insider voice of the pharmacy industry. Explore the profession and business of pharmacy through audio. Join us at PharmacyPodcast.com or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any of your favorite podcast directories. You know, whether somebody is using drugs or not, their life is still valuable. Naloxone is a lifesaver. Remember that we're not our disease. I am not a bag of heroin. I'm Stacy. I'm just as normal as the next person. My outlook has always been to educate because I think when you're talking about stigma here as as an overall goal of yours, I think the only way to really gnaw away at that is to educate people. Unfortunately, I have not had many positive experiences with the medical community, with anybody I know or anybody in my family. I hope that changed. Opioid use disorder is a chronic condition. It's it's not something that you know goes away forever. It's not like you you go through a treatment program and then suddenly it's not a problem anymore. You know, we don't always get it the first time, and you know, sometimes it takes us a couple times before we finally get it. Don't give up on us so easily. Hi, my name is Logan Kissel, and let's talk stigma. Let's Talk Stigma is an educational podcast mini-series designed to highlight the stigma associated with opioid use disorder and the ongoing opioid epidemic. Each of these episodes will feature a number of different voices from individuals who have in some way experienced the effects of the opioid epidemic, whether in their social life, family life, or professional career. We hope listeners of this podcast will listen with an open mind, reflect on the stories they hear, and be able to recognize and combat stigma associated with opioid use disorder. On today's episode of Let's Talk Stigma, we focus on the voices of individuals directly impacted by the stigma associated with opioid use disorder. We talked with family members, friends, and people in long-term recovery to discuss intrapersonal and interpersonal stigma associated with opioid use disorder. Remember that we're not our disease. I am not a bag of heroin or a suboxone strip when I come walking in that pharmacy. I'm Stacy. I'm just as normal as the next person. We talked with Stacey Brown, an opioid response outreach coordinator with the Allegheny County Health Department's Overdose Prevention Program, who shares her struggles with intrapersonal stigma, which is the stigma that she enacts on herself, and interpersonal stigma, which is the stigma she's experienced from other people in her life. We beat ourselves up. I told myself that I didn't fit in. You know, I carried that every day. There's a difference between low self-esteem and stigma against self. Like low self-esteem is saying, I I look too chunky in this outfit, but walking around thinking that I don't deserve to be a mom or I don't deserve to have a job I have because somebody had once told me that I didn't. So I carried that for a long time. She told us a story about both a negative and a positive interaction she had with two different pharmacists when she was in time of need. When I was on Suboxone, I had walked into a chain pharmacy and the area I was in, first of all, was not a good area. It's an area that I also used in. So I had went in to get my prescription filled and They were out of the medication. They didn't have enough for me. And instantly I went into full panic mode only because I didn't want to use anymore. 
I had overdosed. I was reversed with Narcan. And so I was so afraid of dying that I didn't want to use. And when he told me, all I heard was, we don't have your medicine. So I started to get a little bit worked up. And to me, I felt that he was talking down to me, like, like I was beneath him. He just was like, it'll be in in a few days. We're going to place the order. And so I started to get worked up. And I don't know what made me, but I figured down the street and around the bend was another pharmacy. It was at a grocery store. So I sort of just grabbed my prescription and I was so worried. I remember walking down there. I wanted to get high so bad. And I, I convinced myself that if I got to this next pharmacy and they didn't have it, I was using. It was just bottom line. I was not feeling good because I had just started this whole treatment. And he had wrote on my prescription, you know, how they fill out the prescription with your phone number and stuff. So then I'm thinking, I'm not going to get this filled because it's already been altered. Go into this next pharmacy, and I was a basket case by this time. So when I walked up, I set the prescription down, and he looked right at me and was like, I'm sorry, we can't fill this. And I just went ballistic. I started crying. I... It was horrible. But that pharmacist, that man came from behind the pharmacy and come out into the grocery store with me and sat me down where you get like your blood pressure checked and was like talking to me just like, I mean, I I was already on my phone trying to call and get something because I was afraid. I didn't know if I was going to be sick. I didn't know if I was going to go through withdrawals again. He sat there with me and he called, they called another chain of theirs, like another location. And they had it delivered. And the whole, like I must've sat there with them for about an hour until that prescription was delivered. And then he gave it to me, but just him talking to me, She went on to say that the second pharmacist who simply sat and listened to her and then took the extra step of calling another pharmacy location for her medication might have saved her life. She also described a positive interaction she had with the provider in the emergency room. This doctor was really, really, I mean, she was so cold. She was nice too, but she was looking at my ankle and she said, is your arm okay? And I said, yeah, And, and she knew what I was doing. She knew I was trying to hide the track marks. And she said, listen, that doesn't bother me. Is that why your ankle hurts? And I said, "Um, no, because I fell off a curb or tripped up a step or something. And she said, okay, you want to talk about it? We can talk about it. But if not, I need to check your ankle because it was the size of a softball at that time. But after she was all done, she said, do you mind if I look at your arms And I said no, and she actually gave me prevention points card because she said they provided wound care. And so that was like sort of her warm handoff to a resource that actually was able to help me. In this interaction, the provider listened to Stacy's concerns and chief complaint and was able to refer her to additional resources in a non-stigmatizing way. Stacy further described the situation where she experienced both interpersonal and intrapersonal stigma in her personal life. The worst 
encounter that I had with a social group was at my daughter's elementary school PTO. When I had my older daughter, I wasn't a part of her life because of my using my parents raised her. And so when I had my second daughter, which is like 18 years in between, I was able to be active in her life. I was able to be a school mom. I was a dance class mom. I wanted to join the PTO because I got to volunteer for all her school activities and I would be able to be there with her. Well, I went to the one meeting and I had my work lanyard on and one of the parents looked it up on the internet and found out that it was a recovery place and assumed that I myself was in recovery. So he questioned me and I felt the need that I to lie. I had already had that feeling at the beginning. So I said that I was in Alcoholics Anonymous instead of Narcotics Anonymous because I felt that it sounded better to be a drunk than a heroin addict. And so they started to look up my past. So came time for elections and I wanted to run for a position. I just wanted to be the secretary, the one that made the flyers, the one that did the advertisements for the functions and stuff. I had, you know, got nominated and they started blasting my past and things about me on the school's Facebook page. It was like a mean mom's group. And, you know, there were other parents that had stuck up for me. And and at first I was like, I'm not going to, I'm just going to pull out of this election. Like I, I knew it. I, I don't fit in here. I need to just take my kid to school and drop her off. And I had a lot of support from other parents, but even the principal, because I was very honest with the principal about my past. It functions, they were hiding the money box. I was the only parent out of the whole PTO that had a full-time job. It was embarrassing. They even told school police. Like I would pull up to pick my daughter up and they would watch me. I'm thinking in the back of my head, I could probably help them get into treatment because they probably need it. But I'm being shunned and, and stigmatized for decisions that I made and I'm not that person today. One of the funniest ones I think is, is the doctor that I had at that time is in jail for just writing prescriptions basically. I think he's out now, but you know, this is like 20 years ago. You know, I remember him coming to visit me one time when I was in the hospital, one of the times that I got back and him talking to me like, you know, I was some just piece of garbage and, you know, going around and shooting drugs in your veins and blah, blah, blah. And totally treated me terrible. And at the same time, he was the one that was writing me two different prescriptions for painkillers every month. We talked to Kevin, husband of Kelly, who we heard from in a previous episode about his experience with opioid use disorder and long-term recovery and how the positive relationships with others in his life impacted his ability to reach recovery. My name's Kevin, I'm an alcoholic and an addict. I've uh, been sober since August 28th of 2008. I struggled with substance use all pretty much all my life. And uh, towards the end, it got real bad. Like I said before, it turned out to be on the, the better side once things settled themselves out and I was able to get, you know, where I needed to be. I'm a restaurant manager 
and um, I spend a lot of time there. <laughs> I do work with a lot of people that are in recovery, and I'm fortunate enough to have been hired at a place, you know, the owner is actually in recovery also. You know, when I first got clean and sober is when I started working there, and I've always had <clears throat> kind of that support around me all the time, and I didn't have to worry about being in a dangerous environment where there is drugs and alcohol because we had a zero tolerance for it. I've been able to help people out with their problems, and, you know, they've helped me also. And, I mean, I also belong to the depart- fire department in our town, which has always been a, a good place for me to go. I got really involved in helping out in the community. And, you know, I tried to get sober a lot of times for family and for my job and for other things like that. But it wasn't until I finally got sober for myself that, you know, I really started to get hooked on progress really in my life and learning new things. And, you know, it just kind of started to steamroll from there. It was like, why didn't I do this before? It was finally like I grew up and learned how to enjoy life and be the person that I was supposed to be instead of the person that I was. And uh, one of the biggest things that was a huge help for me in my life was I went to a three-quarter house and lived for a while. And during that time, you know, I learned a lot about myself and a lot about other people, basically how to live like a responsible person. I was responsible for my own things. And if I didn't, wasn't being responsible for my own things, they called me out on that, you know, instead of just letting it go and let me continue to be the same person that I was. And during that time, I got to see a lot of people that came in and out of the house that were spitting images of how I used to be. And I used to, I got a good glimpse at myself you know, of how I used to be and was like, wow, you know, it was a real eye opener. You know, my family was always kind of there for me and I, it kind of actually brought us closer together because I kind of shed some light on a situation that had been, you know, in the whole family. Uh, my father was a, a very bad alcoholic and we never talked about anything about it. it kind of brought a lot of that to light. You know, my family never really kind of disowned me or whatever, but they did set boundaries. And it took a long time for me to actually, you know, earn their trust back. And those are the ways I had to change before, you know, they were able to trust me again. But they always loved me and supported me. But we're not going to take my bullshit, if you want to kind of say it like that. <laughs> like they had the idea that there was something wrong with me, but were afraid to ask and didn't probably want to know what the answer was. But, you know, once it all came to light, everything kind of made sense and they were a lot more supportive. Obviously, education is, you know, a huge bit of it. I've been to some meetings sometimes, you know, that are open meetings where we've had people from the medical field in the meetings just trying to get an idea of, you know, what we go through and where we're coming from. You know, they seem to, it seems like they're, they're finally making a step in the right direction with this versus we're just bad people. Granted, a lot of times we are bad people when we're in active addiction and, you know, that's hard to be nice to us sometimes when we're not at our best. But I think just, you know, compassion and and remembering that we're still people though, and we are suffering from something and, you know, not to just write us off because we're, you know, addicts or alcoholics or, you know, whatever, just the way that we're treated, you know, with some respect a little bit anyway, anything they can do to help. Unfortunately, having a substance use disorder is is looked at as having poor morals or making poor choices or because you do things because you're a bad person and, you know, you don't choose 
the right thing to do. You always choose the wrong thing to do. I have back issues. So I had to have back surgery. But before I had back surgery, I was taken to the hospital a number of times and I was treated like I was faking it so I could get pain medication. That's, that's unacceptable. It is just unacceptable. I know many friends that have walked into an emergency room wanting to detox and wanting help, and they are given detox meds and told to go home. There's no space for them there. I think the medical community has a long way to go when it comes to how they treat people with this disease. I think it's better than it used to be, and I see a definite desire to want to learn and how they can do things better. And really, I mean, again, it goes back to just looking at it like any other disease. How would you treat somebody walking in with heart disease? How would you treat somebody walking in with diabetes? How would you treat somebody walking in with cancer? With care and kindness and understanding and an education on that disease and in a way that you can help that person find recovery. So how can we as healthcare providers improve our interactions with patients to limit this person-to-person stigma? We hear again from Joellen Marsh, who you met in previous episodes. I absolutely think there's a lack of education around opioid use disorder and around uh, substance use in general. You know, many people use substances for all sorts of reasons. And I think there's a lot of stigma about it. And because of that stigma, we often only know that someone is using a substance if they can't hide it. And so there are many, many people out there who are using substances, but look like a typical person. And so oftentimes we, we think of someone with substance use disorder as, you know, maybe somebody who's living under a bridge or somebody who is struggling in, in many areas of their life. There is no bad drug and there is no bad way of consuming a drug. It was honestly, it was a shock to me because of course heroin's the bad one, right? Like when you talk to anybody, if they're talking about, oh, I use weed, but I wouldn't touch heroin or I might use cocaine sometimes, but I don't use heroin or meth. Or even I snort heroin, but I would never shoot it. You hear all of these kinds of things, and it's really just to make us feel better about ourselves. The fact is, all of these things are used for a purpose, and the people who are using them all have pretty rational reasons about why they're using them. And I think sometimes we forget to ask people, and I think that stigma and shame makes it really hard. So maybe I go out and I, you know, I drink on the weekends and I have a huge hangover the next day. But at least I'm not using a drug or at least I didn't drive home drunk. There's all of this, like, at least I am not. And anything that starts with that, that's really about making ourselves feel better because we're uncomfortable with something in ourselves. And I think the more we can look at ourselves and say we are valuable and everyone around us is valuable, not because of what they do or the substances they use or don't use. They're valuable because they're human beings. The more we can get to that place, the more we can can take away the stigma of whatever it is, because it just stops to, it stops mattering as much. If you see a colleague who, who you're recognizing that they had an interaction where they treated somebody very differently because of some perception or some stigma, you know, have a, a conversation about it. I don't think that shame helps ever in, in behavior change. So I don't think that it's it's helpful to go to somebody and say, oh my God, how could you do that? That's so terrible. But also just asking questions like, why did you respond that way to that person? What did you think about them? Is that the way you typically respond to other people? Like, I think just really questioning ourselves and the people around us to see how we can all do better in whatever position that we're in. Lauren Jonkman, a pharmacist who you heard from in episode one, summarizes her thoughts on intrapersonal or self-stigma that happens among people who use drugs. I see that internal almost internal stigma that folks have that 
if they do accidentally have a slip or something happens and they, you know, and they start using again, that's why folks stop coming in. And, and so there's a lot of this internal stigma, I think that people have in their own head that they're afraid to then, they're afraid to come, they're afraid to tell you that they were doing so well, and then they're not. Um, and I think that it's a really normal thing to have periods where things are going well and things that are not going well. Um, opioid use disorder is a chronic condition. It's it's not something that goes away forever. It's not like you you go through a treatment program and then suddenly it's not a problem anymore. So I think knowing that there are these ups and downs and and being you know open to that with folks, you don't want to say like, yeah, I know you might like you might relapse at some point, but but also saying that if if you did, please still come. This podcast was developed by the University of Pittsburgh School of Pharmacy in partnership with Duquesne University School of Pharmacy. Funding for this podcast was provided in part by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention.